So hey, listen, we're finishing up a series that we're calling What Happy Couples Know. And um, uh, we've said that when it comes to relationships, we walk into every relationship carrying an invisible box, right, of our, our hopes, our dreams, our desires. But when we hand that box to someone else, that may happen on day one, week one, month one, year one, but at some point we hand that box to them, right? And when we hand it to them, it doesn't feel to them like hopes, dreams, or desires at all. It feels to them like demands or expectations. To them, it feels like a weight or pressure. And we've also said that demands and expectations always lead to a collision, right? Because it isn't just that you handed someone else your box. At the same time, they were handing you their box. You essentially swap boxes. And so what was kind of intangible and unspoken before starts to come out. And it comes out in a series of long discussions or arguments, right, about whose box is better, whose box is more important, whose box makes the most sense, right? Now listen, this is not meant to be a representation of Christian marriage. We looked at Ephesians 5 in week 2, right? And we said that uh, Christian marriage is meant to be a submission competition. Christian marriage is supposed to be a place where uh, both people are racing simultaneously to the back or, or the end of the line. And then a few weeks back, Mike reminded us that we can cast our cares, our hopes, dreams, and desires on God, right? Because He cares for us and Part of what makes means is that we can be honest with God, right? And that He can take it. And then last week we said that marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. And that the math of marriage looks something like this. One sinner plus one sinner equals conflict to the second power right? And we also said that conflict in marriage is not necessarily or not a compatibility issue, but it's always a sin issue. And therefore, forgiveness is the only way through that we are to forgive those who sin against us, especially in our marriage, in the same way that Christ has forgiven us. What the Scripture says is that Christ has shown us how to deal with sin, and the way through that is always forgiveness. Now today, we want to look at how the Scriptures talk about and how they define love. And we're going to land in one of the most famous statements in all of Scripture. In fact, you just heard it read. And we're going to see that the way we, our culture thinks and talks about love, and even that the way we sometimes think and talk about love, falls very, very short of the way that the Bible talks about love. Now, this statement occurs in a book of the New Testament written to the church at Corinth. It's written by a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul used to hate Christians. He used to torture Christians. And then through a series of miraculous events, he became one, right? And so he um, essentially is writing to people who are Gentiles or non-Jewish believers. And here's why that matters so much. Uh, Because these Gentiles 
believed in what we would call and what we would know as pagan religions. In pagan religions, there were many gods. So you think things like Zeus and Apollos and Hermes and all the gods, right? So there were many gods and those gods didn't care about people. Those gods used people. Those gods manipulated people. Those gods had no, uh, there was no thought of, you know, gods, the gods loving people in the culture that Paul was speaking into. So he's writing to them and he's telling them two things. First of all, there aren't many gods, there's only one. And secondly, this God actually loves and cares about people. And so one of the ways you demonstrate a love for God is by loving people, loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And uh, also, in pagan religion, there was no ethics, there was no morality. In other words, you didn't do anything on this earth toward other people to try to keep the gods happy. As we've already said, the gods didn't care about other people. Instead, to keep the gods happy, you made sacrifices. So you would sacrifice things that were important to you. You would sacrifice animals. In some cultures, they would actually sacrifice children. And the whole point was, hey, we need to make sacrifices here on earth so that our crops will grow, so that our children will become healthy, so that we'll win battles, so that we'll stay protected. So the Apostle Paul is speaking into these Gentile environments, and he's saying, listen to you. Okay, the God I'm introducing to you is completely different than the gods that you know. In order to please this God, it's not about sacrifices. In order to please this God, you actually treat people the way that God has loved or that God is treating you. That is, you're to love the people around you. And the the Apostle Paul elaborates on this idea that Jesus actually introduced that we need to love others the way that he has loved us. In fact, I want to remind you of that again. This is John 13, right? Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he says, and to which the disciples probably said, well, Jesus, that's not really a new command, to which Jesus would reply, well, wait, I'm not done yet. I want you to love one another, not as you would want to be loved, but I want you to love one another as as I have loved you. See, that's the new command. So it raises the bar, right, on love. And then he goes on to say, By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so the Apostle Paul will springboard from that one command, uh, that one overarching command of the New Testament, and he'll say things like this, Galatians 5, 6 and 13 through 15. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, by the way, when we think about verses like John 13, the one we just read, the one we're reading right now, we tend to think, well, those are church verses. Those are verses that you apply in church. But what we've been telling you is that, no, those are verses that need to be applied in your home. These are verses that need to be applied in your marriage so we're asking the question right what would it look like if you were to apply these commands in your marriage right uh, and so the apostle paul elaborates on and it, on this and he defines 
um, what it would look like, what it would look like to love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. And so he pins 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and he defines this love. Now this is a popular chapter. Some of you may have um, had it in your wedding. You might have even uh, you know, quoted it. Some of you in your wedding vows. Uh, it's often called, in fact, the love chapter. But this is a very earthy, very gritty, and very real um, kind of uh, description of love, and I want to you to ask yourself as we're kind of walking through it: Is this the way that I'm loving other people? The way that love is described in these verses? Because what's so important to note is that uh, a lot of us are going to find this isn't really our experience when it comes to love. That we're not either loving or being loved in this way, but it is meant to be part of our experience as it relates to the love of God. The love being described here perfectly describes the love of Jesus, the love of God. And so I just want to ask you, do you know the love of God in the way that it's described in these verses? So uh, here we go. Here's how it starts. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, right, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a, cli- a clinging uh, cymbal. Now, remember, they're coming out of pagan religion, right? And so in pagan religions, they would speak what was called the language of the gods, the language of the gods, but because, and this was very, very important to them, and so this is a way for Paul to say, look, you can speak the language of the gods all day. He doesn't use that language, right, because he knows there's no other gods but the one true God. So he's saying, look, don't, you don't speak that language, so instead he talks about the language of angels. Instead, he said, even if you could speak with the tongues of men, if you were, as elo- if you were an eloquent orator, Or even if you could speak the tongues of angels, an ecstatic utterance, right, in prayer. Even if you could do all that, but if you didn't have love, that would profit you nothing. It would mean nothing. It would gain you nothing. You'd just become a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's all. And then he goes on. He says, and if if I have prophetic powers... In other words, if I can take a verse from the Old Testament or the New Testament and I speak that as a prophet to you or I give you a word from the Lord as a prophet, but I don't have love, that prophetic utterance, that prophetic power gains you nothing, it profits you nothing. Love is the way. This is so important. What he's saying is that love is more important than gifting. Whether you have the gift of tongues, whether you have a prophetic gift, it doesn't matter. Love is more important than gifting, right? And then he goes on to say, if I have faith that can move mountains. In other words, I have this incredible trust in God, but I don't, again, have love, then I'm nothing. Now, so literally in the Greek, what Paul is saying here is he's saying this, look, I could be the smartest person in the room. I could know more of the Bible 
than anyone else in the room. I may be, do, may be able to explain the Bible better than anyone else, answer any question about the Bible that you have, but if I don't have love, I am literally a nobody. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that knowledge does not equal deep. If you want to meet somebody who is a deep Christian and deeply spiritual, knowledge is not the measure. Love is the measure. Love is the measure. And it's the only measurement. And then he says, and he goes on, right? And if I give all I possess... I mean, who would do that? He doesn't say, I give 10% of all I have or 20%. No, he says, if I give everything I own to the poor, and if I give my body, uh, offer up my body to be burned, this is the way they would often make sacrifices, right? So he's saying, uh, if I literally sacrificed my own body, um, I I would gain nothing if I didn't do it in love or out of love, right? But here's the question. What does it mean for a man or a woman to have love? Because my guess is, if I were to do a survey of everybody in this room and say, okay, you tell me if you have love, I think every hand in the room would go up. Every hand at home would go up, right? Because when you hear the phrase, have love, it sounds like something on the inside, right? In other words, hey, I cry when I see a Hallmark commercial, so I clearly have love, right? I mean, hey, I have love in here, right? So, you know, I feel compassion toward uh, other people when they're going through a hard time. You know, I feel sorry for those kids that I see on TV who don't get three square meals a day. I feel bad for my friends when they go through stuff. I have love. So Paul is going to make it clear that having love is not about what's going on on the inside. He's going to make it clear that love is not about something that I feel. And he's going to make it very clear that love is something I do. And if I'm not doing things in my relationships to demonstrate love, then I don't really have it. It's not something in here. It's something that finds its way out into my actions. Right? And so he begins. He says, love is patient love is patient Um, in other words true love is patient with other people it's patient that when when they're not developing as much as we would like them to develop or uh, it's love is just patient right and then he goes on to say love is kind in other words love defers to the needs of other people love builds them up love is kind. Uh, And there's no other kind of love than a kind love, right? And then he goes on and he says this, love does not envy or boast. In other words, when you're more talented than me, when, when your gifts outshine mine, when you're the life of the party and I'm not, that's awesome because I want you to be, I want you to be out in front. I want your gifts to be developed. I want your talent to shine. And whether mine shines as brightly as yours or not isn't important to me because I want you to be at the forefront. Right again, that race to the back of the line idea. 
And then it goes on to say this, and love is not proud. It's not arrogant, right? This means, listen, how many of you have ever had an argument or a discussion? We don't call them arguments as Christians, right? They're just discussions. How many of you have ever had an argument that goes on for, you don't even have to raise your hand, that goes on for days or weeks or even months, or even years. See, I say to people all the time, Jackie and I are fortunate in our marriage. Jackie and I do not fight about a lot of things. What Jackie and I do is we have the same fight, uh, or the same couple of fights, over and over and over and over again. See? But when we have fights, and they go on for days or even weeks, you know what that's a sign of? It's a sign of pride. It's a sign of arrogance. It's a sign of, no, I'm not going to the back of the line. I'm going to the front of the line because i got to have my way. Uh, that, see, so Paul says, look, if that's your version of love, you're doing it wrong. You're not really loving because love is not proud and it's not rude and then look what it goes on to say it does not insist on its own way this is that race to the back of the line thing yet again right it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful now again this is a description of agape love the love of God right? So again, this is so outside most of our experience because we don't love in the way that God does. But that's the hitch, isn't it? Because our, the commandment, the overarching commandment of the New Testament is that we love exactly as Christ has loved us. So this is so, so important. It goes on in verse 6 and says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, we're going to come back to that one in just a few minutes, okay? But then it kind of climaxes in verse 7 and then verse 8. It says, Love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails right? Love never fails. Now, um, as we kind of read through that list, there's one of these that doesn't make a lot of sense that I want to talk about. And the reason it won't make sense at first to you is because it's completely dependent on the one doing the loving and not the one who's being loved. See, because what we want to say is, oh, no, no, no. What should matter is that the one being loved is acting in a way that's worthy of that love. And if they don't act in a way that's worthy of that love, then we shouldn't love them that way. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we're going to really get into it, okay? And it's this one. So love bears all things, love believes all things. Literally in the Greek, here's what it says. Love believes the best. Love believes the best. And I want to dive into this. In every relationship, not just romantic relationships, not just marriage, not just dating, not just engagement, but in every relationship from time to time, there will be a gap between your expectations and the behavior of the other person. There will be a gap in there, right? 
So in other words, they say, I'll be there at 6. You expect them to be there at 6. They show up at 6.30. There's a gap, right? Hey, you were going to watch the kids. You didn't show up. Where have you been? That, that's the kind of gap that we're talking about, right? And every time you experience that gap, you fill in that gap with a little story. And you are the one who is in charge of the little story that you will put in that gap. So you're either going to choose to believe the worst. Well, here we go again. He said, and this is like the hundredth time he's been late. You know, that's an example, right, of going right to the worst, kind of believing or assuming the worst. But what I want you to note, and what I need you to understand, is that you and I, we are in charge of that little story that we tell um, ourselves. And we either choose to believe the best, well, I don't know why he's late, right, uh, I don't know why they didn't follow through. I don't know why he said that and then didn't do it. But, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to tell a better story about this situation to myself than I would ordinarily tell. So here's the deal. Happy couples, happy couples make it a habit. They choose to tell themselves a better story when there's a gap between their expectations of someone and then their behavior. Now, several years ago, there was an author and a speaker by the name of Marcus Buckingham who wrote a book. It wasn't a book on marriage. It was actually a book on business management and leadership. But in his book, he cites a 20-year study. They studied people in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, and they were looking for, as you might expect, kind of a common denominator about what is it that makes these couples have so much longevity and still find so much enjoyment in one, one another. Right now, they weren't just asking people who were grinding it out for the kids and sticking together, you know, because, hey, they said they would. They were actually... Uh, surveying couples who still enjoyed one another okay and they were looking for they assumed there was kind of a common denominator and that's what they were looking for but in doing this researchers had an assumption and their assumption was that they would find that over time these couples had kind of downgraded their expectations for one another right in other words um you know that through time, people kind of realized, hey, you know what? He's not as great, you know, as I thought he was. She's not as put together as I thought she was. So I'm just going to reduce my expectations to kind of fit, you know, who he is or, you know, who she is. In actuality, they found exactly the opposite had, uh, had happened. And so here's what they found. So let's take kindness, for example. They would survey these couples and let's say, hey, is your spouse kind? And, you know, maybe they'd have a numeric system from one to five. Here's what they found. They found that the happiest couples consistently rated their spouses as higher 
in, in qualities like kindness than they rated themselves. So in other words, they may give their mate a four in kindness and give themselves a three. And that, that worked both ways. Both couples consistently rated their spouses on key metrics as being higher than themselves. Okay, so and uh, at the end of their study, here was their recommendation, and this is so important. It's so powerful. Their recommendation was this, that in a relationship, when there's a gap between your expectations and the behavior of the other person, and I love this, find the most generous explanation for that that you can, and then believe it. Choose to believe it. Tell yourself that story, right? Just tell yourself that story. Come up with the most generous explanation for their bad behavior that you can come up with and then just decide to believe it. Choose to believe the best because that's what love does. Now, some of you, you're pushing back. I get it. I I understand this because there are some obstacles to this. So I want to talk about the obstacles. One is this. I mean, it's what we experience in our marriages, right? I mean, yeah, but he did it again. Yeah, she said she would for the hundredth time and she didn't. So how am I supposed to believe the best when there's this history of shortcoming and failure, you know, in my marriage? It's like clockwork. The other thing, the other obstacle that we bring into the relationship isn't the history of our relationship. Do you know what it is? It's who we are. In other words, uh, we, we kind of go, look, you know, we don't come into relationships as blank slates, do we? No, we come in bringing our own hurts, bringing our own triggers, bringing our own um, you know, insecurities, bringing our own mommy hurts or daddy hurts or other kinds of hurts. And so we, we bring that in to our relationships, right? And we say, here, here it is. You deal with it. You know, you, you take care of this. So we bring our history. We bring our baggage, our fear, our insecurity. And because of that, listen to me, this is why you push one another's buttons so often. Because of that, uh, there are certain behaviors that trigger you and there are certain behaviors that trigger uh, the other person in your marriage, right? Okay, but here's what I want you to hear. So I get, I've, I've owned that there are obstacles, right? But even with all your junk, even with all the stuff you bring in, even with the inconsistency of your spouse, right? It is still a choice to believe the best every single time. Every time. It is your choice. And you can choose to believe the best. Now listen, here's why this is so important. Suspicion, suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If, here's what I'm saying. If you assume the worst, like for lots and lots of times, eventually they're going to prove you right. 
eventually they're going to do the very thing that you've been waiting uh, for them to do, right? Uh, You will find something, if you assume the worst, you will find the worst at some point in your relationship. They will prove you right. And they will validate all of that suspicion. So look at this now. It says, we, one of the verses we looked at earlier said, love does not delight in evil, right? This was kind of a tricky one. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. You know what that means? One of the things that means, listen to me, is that love isn't trying to catch the other person doing something wrong. That love isn't trying to catch the other person doing something wrong. That love is not about building up a case against the other person so so that you can finally step in and say, Aha! You did this. You said that and I knew you would. See? Instead, love protects. What is it that love protects? It protects the relationship. It protects the relationship because relationships are what matter most to God. This is so important to get our arms around. So here's the question. Do you believe the best or do you assume the worst? Which is it? Do you believe the best or do you assume the worst? Which way do you go? When there's a gap between your expectations and the behavior of the other person, do you find yourself going, you know what? I'm going to tell a really favorable, generous story about this, and that's the story I'm going to believe. You know, uh, which way do you go? And I just want you to know, regardless of who you're in a relationship with, regardless of what he's like, regardless of what she's like, it is a choice, no matter how inconsistent they are, it is a choice every single time. So let's think about it this way. Sometimes it helps, right, to kind of pan through the options. So let me just ask you this morning, what are the options in your relationships? Are the options going to get you anywhere? Are the options going to take you forward or backwards in your relationship? So let's just kind of work through this little script together. Here's one option. You ready? Here's Here's the alternative. You ready? Lean in. Delight in uncovering mistakes. Thrive on speculation. Assume the worst. Embrace the doubt. Now, I want you to imagine that you're sitting down with your kids. Your kids are older. Maybe they're engaged. Maybe they're about to get married. And you're going to give them advice about what makes a marriage relationship successful right? If you're going to give, a, give them advice, how many of you would actually sit down and give them this advice? Here, here it comes. You ready? Basically, honey, just lay a trap. Just lay a trap. Wait, and he'll step into it eventually. See? And then you can say, aha, I knew that you were going to step in to that trap. I knew that was going to happen. Just lay a trap. Just always be looking for stuff. Always be suspicious. Be the detective in your relationship. Piece things together. Build your case. And then you can prosecute. 
How many of you would ever give that advice to your children? That's fair. Here's the deal, though. Some of you, that's the way you, you conduct business in your marriages. That's the way some of you relate to one another in your marriages. You may never give that advice to your kids, but that's the way that you live. This is why. Listen, no one would give that kind of advice because they recognize where that's going to end every single time. So here's your homework assignment for those of you who are married. The next time you experience a gap between what you expect and how your spouse behaves, fill in that gap with a better story. That's not your spouse's responsibility. No matter how consistent or inconsistent they are, it doesn't matter. It's your responsibility and only you can do it. Just tell yourself, I am going to choose to believe a better and more generous explanation for their behavior, no matter what our history is. Now, listen to me. Does this mean you don't have difficult conversations? When someone doesn't measure, when they tell you they'll be home at 6 and they show up at 6.30, should you have a conversation about that? Absolutely, you should have a conversation about that. That's what adults do, right? They have conversations when, uh, especially when we tell our mates we're going to do something and then we don't do it, right? Of course you have the hard conversation. Uh, you may have the hard conversation over and over and over again, but then you know what you do right after you have that hard conversation? You believe the best. And you don't assume the worst. So just to wet your palate about how bad this can get, I want to tell you a true story. And uh, I want you and I to be able to learn from the mistakes of someone else. And it's someone you wouldn't expect. So how many of you are familiar with the name John Wesley? John Wesley poured his life into the ministry of Methodism. So the whole Methodist church um, got started. He was the founding pastor of that movement. But for John Wesley, in February of 1751, things changed because at the age of 48, the never-married John Wesley was crossing London Bridge when he slipped on ice and he broke his ankle. He was then taken into the home of a 41-year-old wealthy widow by the name of Molly Vazil. And uh, without even passing a mention of this in his journal, they were actually married eight days later. Now, some biographers have since referred to their ensuing marriage as the 30-year war. Doesn't that sound like a fun marriage? During the course of his ministry, John traveled some 25,000 miles on horseback. He preached some 40,000 sermons. He also believed that his marriage to Molly should in no way reduce his travel or his ministry, saying, quote, I cannot understand how a Methodist preacher can answer to God to preach one less sermon or travel one less mile in a single state than in a married state. 
Now, Molly tried for the first four years of their marriage to try to travel with him, uh, but she stopped after she experienced almost constant illness, seasickness, and fear from dangerous mobs who would often gather and try to relieve John of his life. So, uh, she was bitter that he refused to travel less, and he was bitter that she expected him to travel less. Uh, And so, they became bitter enemies. Uh, She returned home, and he continued to travel extensively. Okay. Uh, one time, in an effort to sabotage his ministry, Molly broke into her husband's office to open his personal mail. She then sent damaging letters to his critics and the newspapers, and even sent letters from her own hand undermining her husband and seeking to destroy his ministry. This included accusing him of adultery with his housekeeper, a charge which he continually denied. Their bitter conflict even escalated to physical violence. A visiting minister reported that he witnessed Molly ripping John's hair out And in one of his own letters to his wife, John seemingly admits to assaulting her and saying, now this is is English, this is old English, so it's hard to understand, right? But here's what he wrote. I took ye first by ye arm and afterward by ye shoulder and shook you twice or thrice, admitting that it, quote, made you black and blue, I bless God that I did not do this 50 times or nothing worse. Her bitterness, made worse by John's extensive ongoing letter writing to multiple women, caused Molly to become insanely jealous, which led to erratic and volatile behavior, so much so that their final eight years as a married couple were spent apart as she never ever one time set foot in John's personal residence. What is believed to be his final correspondence to her occurred on October 2nd, 1778. And his letter says he is not bitter, but I want you to evaluate for yourself whether he really was or not. Here's what he says. Uh, He says, As it is doubtful, considering your age and mine, whether we will uh, meet any more in this world, I think it is right to tell you my mind once for all without either anger or bitterness. And here's what he says. If you were to live a thousand years, you could not undo the mischief that you have done to me. And until you have done all you can towards it, I bid you farewell. Does that sound like a man who's not, despite his claim that he's not bitter or angry, what do you think? See, this is the nature of bitterness and anger. It makes you feel justified. It makes you feel that you are completely right And they are completely wrong. Now this was coming from a man who knew his Bible. 
And this is precisely why 1 Corinthians 13 says that knowledge alone puffs up. It doesn't matter if you know your Bible. What matters is are you a loving man? Are you a loving person? Are you loving other people the way that God in Christ loved you? And so this is such an amazing story about, listen, if we don't get, if we're not getting bitter, we're getting better in our marriages. But bitterness has to be dug up every day, every single day. It just has to be dug up. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite our praise team up. And while they're coming up, I just want to pray for us. I want to pray, listen, not just in our marriages, but that we would be men and women that would be known for our love, that we would be marked by love. It is the single overarching uh, commandment of the New Testament to be men and women that are marked by love. So how does that look in your marriage right now? How does it need to look? In your marriage right now. So let me pray for us. God, help us to be men and women who do two things well. Who forgive every day. And who believe, who choose to believe the best when our mate's behaviors doesn't meet our expectation. So God, would you transform our hearts, our minds. Would you do a good thing, not just here at church, but in our homes because we're followers of you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love others in exactly the way that you have loved us. Help us to love people with the agape love that's described, the God love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. Help us to give us the strength by your Spirit who lives and moves and breathes within us. And all God's people said, Amen.